Welcome to Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. If you're new to Tales, welcome. If you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back for more. Tales has been downloaded in over 180 cities in 20 countries worldwide. Every day I get stats that help me understand where our listeners are located. This morning we added a new country, Nepal of all places, in the southern slopes of the Himalayas between India and China. You might know the area for three well-known things. Number one, Mount Everest. Number two, it's close to Tibet, the home of the Dalai Lama. And number three, if you were brought up in the 70s or the 60s, born before 1980, you might know this song from Bob Seger. Shit, now I'm starting to sound like a radio DJ. Anyway, so it's known for some things like that. And I'm trying to think, I don't think it's known for golf. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty certain it's not. Other than when Bill Murray mentions the Dalai Lama in Caddyshack. Yeah, I don't think there are many golf courses there. I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama. Do you know what the lamb says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga Lagunga. So he finished 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Hey, it's a golf podcast. I mean, what'd you expect, right? So I'm sharing these insights with my golf buddy, uh, Southern Brad, this morning while we were playing. And I said, you think it's somebody climbing Mount Everest who just needs a distraction from like elevation sickness, or maybe it's the Dalai Lama himself just getting a swing game ready. And without blinking an eyelash, this is what Brad said. No, Rich, he is what I think it is. I bet it's just somebody on their journey to see the Dalai Lama in quest of the secrets of life and figured listening to tales on their journey would prepare them to ask even bigger questions. Or maybe the Lama needs some golf tips and... This man on his journey could just go ahead and trade them for some of the secrets of life. Yeah, that's what I think. Anyway, yeah, I think it's none of those things. But what the hell? Namaste, Nepal. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, Southern Bread sounds nothing like that. But I thought it was funny.
Here's another episode where I have an opportunity to interview Josh about more people that he's trained. In this two-part episode, we're going to learn about his working relationship with Sarah, Duchess of York, and Paul McCartney. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm with Josh Salzman again, and Josh has graciously taken some time out of his schedule. I'm sure he's, he's already trained people this morning, and he has people later today. And uh, for those of you that have listened to our podcast together, we've done, we've had uh, four episodes, and it's really two episodes broken in, in half. But first, we started talking about how Josh got from Berkshires in Western Massachusetts to UK. Uh, we talked about our first interaction with each other at Union College, where a stripper had him buck naked in front of a room of strangers, and how we became buddies after that experience. Uh, we talked about some of the celebs and pro athletes that Josh has trained, like Ernie Els, Angelina Jolie, uh, Scarlett Johansson, and Kate Winslet, and some of the very intimate uh, experiences he had with uh, a lot of those and more. And then we talked about his mission right now, SuperA.UK, where he helps guide people to a stronger, healthier, longer lifestyle. Josh and I had talked like several times, and he always mentions uh, Sarah, the Duchess of York. I thought I'd have Josh talk to us a little bit about how he met her, how he trains her, some of his experiences in dealing with royalty, particularly in spite of back earlier this much on this month on March seventh, there was this Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan, where they revealed a lot of what happened behind the palace gates, and we'll kind of get into Josh's thought on that as well, but. Josh, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back, Rich. It's, it's great to talk to you. It's like having a, a, a weekly or bi-weekly meeting with my, uh, with my psych coach because <laughs> you reaffirm the fact that you can be crazy. And as long as you know it, you're not crazy, if you know what I mean. So. Yeah, ditto. Tell, tell me a little bit about how you came to start training uh, Sarah and what, where was she in, in her life then? Was she currently uh, her royal highness? Uh, Duchess yes, York or before that. Yeah. So, so what happened was this, Rich, it, I came to England, as you heard before my previous podcast in 1984, and I had, you know, started working as a personal trainer and, uh, and going to all the people from real estate people to obviously arms dealers, uh, the guy that owned Harrods and then got, uh, a few connections. Uh, one in particular was, um, was this guy called Lord uh, White. And Lord White was a gentleman who was about 78 years old at the time and had been with, without with, uh, I don't know, Rita Haywood back in the day. So this is like 86. And so I'm training him. And I always remember I asked him, what should I call you? Should I call you sir? Or should I call you, you know, mister? He says, call me Gordy. Yeah. And for the last three hours, yeah. you've been calling me mate. Well, it's okay. apparent. Okay. Sorry? He's a parent. Why are you so fucking chippy? I'm not chippy, mate. Right, Gordon. Gordon. James, it'd be greatly appreciated for the next 20 minutes. Gordon. Gordon. I'm not your fucking mate. Okay, Gordon. Anyways, he had a, he had a few marriages, and, 
his 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 present at that time his present girlfriend was 28 years old and she was a very hot model and i forget her name but i remember that gossip columnists in the paper said she has three hobbies exercise brisk walking and toss salads so um and you mean Gordon like she was, was tossing like, Gordy's salad or toss salad? Like she was well, a chef? I, well, I think it's more like she didn't have anything to do and he was working his ass off. But I'm sure she, in a way, killed him, you know, because he was. Wait, know, he's going, 78 going to, and she's 28? Yes. <laughs> 50 years difference. Yeah, she yeah, probably contributed. Yeah. Yeah, she contributed that. So he was brisk walking with her. And going to late meetings. Anyways, bless him. He passed away a couple years after I worked with him. But he introduced me to a couple people. And one of the persons was a very famous model called Denise Lewis. She was an American over here. And she, um, she, I started training with her. And she was a kind of real crazy um, American lady. Kind of like that Nicole Smith kind of lady that, you know, was coming from a small town in Texas. But made it really big as a model, right. you know. Sure, yeah. And, and, got, yeah, and got carried away with the the marching powder and stuff like that, bless her. But at the time I was training, and I always remember when she had her breasts done, you know, um, she was the kind of woman that just went, you want to see my tits? And she just pulled up her shirt. And uh, I went, she was oh, proud yeah. of them, right? Because she was proud she was of the proud improvement. Of yeah, she was proud of the improvement. Obviously, being from Pittsfield, we don't usually have things like that happen. <laughs> and so, um, so, so I was at her place, and I, you know, inside I was going like, holy shit, in my head. And I'm on the outside, I'm going, oh, that's good. They're nice and firm. That's fine. Yeah, they're good. And as you do your step-ups, they don't seem to move that much, which is interesting. What I love about big breasts is not just the visual. It's also the tactile, the way it feels when you're making love to a woman. It's, it's the attention that she gets. I have to admit that. And... It's a, it's a feeling of richness, that there's an abundance, that uh, life is good. Most men might expect a slap in the face if they ask their wife or girlfriend to get a boob job. But Ivan Lacasque loves big busts so much, he's managed to convince four partners to have their breasts enlarged. But, but having said that... Um... Yes, yeah, she was going out with a guy called Steve Wyatt. And Steve Wyatt was a, was a guy, American guy, that was working over here. And his dad was Oscar Wyatt, who was an oil guy and a gas guy. In fact, oh, he sure. had a few yeah. with with Saddam Hussein pre the first Gulf War, trying to get uh, shipments of, uh, of oil out of the States. And I always remember Steve, you know, I was, I, was, I was always sailing close to the wind, Rich, with children and working by the hour. And I remember I, the thing that stood out with Steve, he was a really nice guy, but it, he, 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 I remember him saying to me, you know, I'm down to my last $50,000. And I thought, I never saw $50,000 at that point. <laughs> never, saw, never saw a bank account with that much money in it. You know, I, I saw maybe six, but not 50. Anyways, but the point being that- Did his dad like give on, him an allowance or is this like- I don't, I don't think his dad gave, yeah, he used to work with his dad. It was more or less his stepdad, but his his- mom was called a lady called Lynn White, a very famous socialite. It was kind of a lady that, you know, if she was around today, she'd be at, Mar- she'd be at Mar-a-Lago. She'd be in, a- at the Grand Prix. Got she'd it, be yeah. at the socialite. Sure. Yeah. And she was the kind of lady that she was very pretty. She was about probably 50 at the time, but you know, she was the kind of lady you'd see from a distance at a party. You go, ah, oh, she's pretty hot because she was very glamorous, very, very striking woman. And anyways, they were invited out to, cause I was training him and they were obviously invited for the weekend 
up to some place where there was a shoot or something and the Duke and Duchess were there. So he said to me during one of my workouts, I'd been training him for a couple of years. He said, uh, he said, Hey Josh, I, I met uh, Fergie this weekend. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, she wants to train with you. This is like 1989. And I said, great, give me your number. And he said, no, you gotta, you gotta give me three free workouts. So I thought <laughs> you're down to your last 50, three free workouts yeah. for the introduction. They gave me the number and I called her up. And she goes, and, and I was expecting this, hello, you know, kind of thing. And she, and she said, hey, Josh, how's it going? Great to hear from you. I'm at Buckingham Palace. Uh, when can you come? I'm, I'm, I really want to get training right now. And the interesting thing is this is before, you know, when personal training was just really getting started. And her, her, her sister-in-law, so to speak, her, the Diana, Princess of Wales, what hadn't been working out yet. In fact, she's the one that got her into working out, so to speak. And they were really close at the time. So I was invited to head out at, a, at 9.30 in the morning on a Thursday, I remember, in 1989. It was about February 1989. So it's been about, what, whatever it's been, like 32 years, yeah? More than 32 years we've been training. So I go to Buckingham Palace. And if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace, you're facing Buckingham Palace. And the guests would always go in on the right side. So I drove my car in. They checked my IDs. They looked under the car. And I came in there. And Anyways, I went to see her, and she was just very cool. And But one thing I always remember with her, and she's still very cool, um, is that there was a queue of people waiting for her on the second floor of Buckingham Palace to see her. And I asked the guy in the front of the queue, I said, when, were your, when was your appointment? He goes, uh, eight, 8.30? And I'm thinking, it's 9.30 now. I ain't going to get in to see her for a while. Anyway, so I waited there. I made sure I had enough time. And I saw her and she was really cool. We did step ups on a bench that she had that because she was still married to the Duke and there was a room there. And it was right in front of or over on the second floor where they had the changing of the guards. So you actually heard the changing of the guards while I'm taken through exercise. So, you know, and, there, and all these people outside the gates are going, oh, there's the changing of the guards. And as I came in, they went, oh, this man's going inside. He's going inside <laughs> with tracksuit on. You know? Right. And, uh, and he's going in there and then obviously the footman takes you upstairs and, you know, and, and at that point there was no guests coming in there. Now people go on tours there and the first floor is really nice. The third floor is really nice. The second floor is where princess Anne lived. Uh, I think, I don't think princess Margaret lived there at the time, but the Duke Did anybody the give doctor. you like any protocol as to when you're going to meet her, how, what you're supposed to, like how you're supposed to address her, what you're supposed to say, like, do you bow or something? Like, what What do they tell you? No, what, what, what I said was ma'am, and we got into the term, I still call her ma'am or buddy, and she calls me buddy. So I either call her buddy or I call her ma'am, but at that time I would call her ma'am because, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans yeah. do. And I know there's people that are what they call over here Republicans, like Elvis Costello, the singers are really Republican. That means he doesn't believe in the monarchy. But I figured that, you know, you do the right thing. And so what we did was when I met her, we went outside to the gardens and in Buckingham Palace, the gardens are massive. And I was living in this place called Battersea, which was, I had a masonette. I had three children at the time and we had a big, we had an outdoor, uh, kind of like balcony and I put AstroTurf down, but I see this outdoor balcony was like 10 by eight. And the kids used to ride their bikes in a circle and smack into each other there, you know? Right. And then I'd take them to the park. So we didn't have any kind of space. So I looked at all this space and I said, holy shit, you could like have a basketball court here. You can have a football pit. You could, you got room for a baseball diamond and Babe Ruth couldn't have hit it out of the garden. You know what I'm saying? Back so there's the a lot of space there. Masses of space. Right. However, 
we went over to this bench and we started doing step ups. This is literally the first time. And all of a sudden we're doing these step ups and, and on, on this bench that was given by King Hottentot in 1890 or something like that. And all of a sudden we hear this helicopter and she goes, we've got to hide. I said, so we may have got to hide. I'm thinking, you know, you got this big garden. No, no, I don't want the Duke of Edinburgh to see me. That's, you know, uh, the queen's husband because he didn't like her. And he also thought that um, this was desecrating, you know, being a personal trainer. What do you think? This is Beverly Hills. She says, we got to hide behind the tree. So I'm thinking, you got to hide behind the tree. You're at the palace and you got to hide behind the tree. So we don't get seen by the Duke until he gets out of his helicopter. That's crazy shit. It's crazy right? shit. Isn't that what you're thinking at the time? It's like, you yeah. got to be kidding why, me. Why do you got to hide? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so we did our workouts and she said, I really want to see it. So I saw her three times a week at Buckingham Palace for three years until uh, they moved to this place called Sunning Hill Park, which isn't as far from I am right now. It's near Great Park. And then obviously they were divorced in 92. But you see, the interesting thing about her, I also was working with the guy that had the famous Sancho Pay pictures. You know, the, the toe-sucking pictures with this guy, John Bryan, another American, that kind of put her into a lot of uh, disrepute, so to speak. So, you know, I've seen a lot of things with her, and I've seen her go through a lot of times. Uh, but I would say this about her. It, she has gotten more grief than any other royal I've ever seen. And sometimes, as we all say, Rich, you run into the waves, and sometimes the waves hit you. Okay, so... Hands up for those that have uh, had uh, wayward energy. Let's call it like that. Yeah? yeah. But having said that, she hasn't murdered anybody and she hasn't done anything wrong. She's been very helpful, very charitable. She had all these motor neuron disease, you know, these Lou Gehrig's uh, charities and children's charities. And I'll tell you a couple anecdotes. The first one I'll tell you is in 1994, I, I was divorced and I was living with this uh, with a, with a lady and it wasn't a really good relationship. It was post my divorce, just post my divorce. And I didn't have the place we were living at the, the you know, I had five children. So she had to leave to stay with her mother, this girl that I was women living with in order for my children to, to have them on the weekend. So the Duchess at that point is quite, it, it was quite documented. She was, she had a 4 million pound overdraft with uh coots, which is the Royal Yeah, bank. She was a big spender. Uh, I she read, was a big yeah, spend- like in the early nineties, she just went, you know, kind of like Elton John, like ape shits overspending. Good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every guy I see. A big spender. Spend a little time with me. Yeah. Overspending. So she had, she's forming. So I had overdrafts. Now you don't get any overdraft. You know, do you ever have the point where you somebody says to you, like, you know what? I don't know if you've ever been through these moments, but you know when you have nothing in your bank account? Hell and then yeah. they found Of course it. I do. Yeah. And then, and now you have minus 30 nothing, right? So I'm thinking you need 30 pounds to be fucking broke, right? How's that work? Like, you know, you get to the point in life where you go, go ahead, turn the electricity off. I really don't give a shit. Oh, it's yeah. that bad. But then, you, but then you, know, you figure out that thing that you need to just to get back to even, right? Yeah. Well, of yeah. course. Yeah. Of course I do. Yeah. And you know, I've seen a lot of people with, with lots of cash and be really depressed. So I don't. Yeah. They don't always go hand in hand. You know, say, you know what you owe them. or what people freedom. owe you doesn't always signify your happiness. So here I am at the gym. She's four million pounds in overdraft. And she was giving, she was getting so much shit. 
she's coming through the door of this little gym I had at Wentworth before the big gym was built. So it was called the Josh Salzman Pro Gym. And it was where Bernard Gallagher, the Ryder Cup captain, who was a client of mine back in the day, had a pro shop. And they moved him in as they developed Wentworth. They moved him into the main building. And they let me develop that as a little gym. And so anyways, long story short, I developed this place. And the Duchess comes there. The news is on, like the local news, Capital Radio, and there's a guy called Chris Tarrant, and, and he's a very, he was a very famous DJ then. And it's 9.30 in the morning, and all these like 12 or 13 women are in there that read the Daily Mail, which is the big, you know, the Daily Depressive, we call it, you know, <laughs> and it's the tabloid thing. Oh, yeah. And as she's coming through the door, the Chris Tarrant says, he literally says, we had the radio on, it was full blast, he says, the Queen has decided to give uh, Sarah, the Duchess of York, four million pounds to pay for overdraft in return for custody of Beatrice and Eugenie. Now that was those are her two girls, lie. right? Yeah, it was two girls. But that was a lie. But it was the first news item. Now she's coming through the door as this is on, and everybody looks at her, and I look at her, and I say, "Hey, buddy," because I'd been working with her since 1989, so it's been five years now. And I said, "Hey, buddy, let's." Uh, Let's go out and back and have a cup of tea. And before I had a chance to say, how are you? Or let's go have a cup of tea. She looks at me and she says, you know what? You're not all right. You can't live where you live right now. I've just rented you a house for a year so you can have your kids every weekend and they can ride their bikes. It's a little cul-de-sac. And don't worry, you can pay me back and we'll work out. No, so I'm thinking didn't. now. That's pretty cool. Now she's four million pounds and about 35,000 pounds. Yeah, right. and it's now getting worse. It's getting worse. So I looked at that moment, and I had at that moment I'd been working with a lot of multimillionaires and billionaires and all that shit, planes, trains, and automobiles, you know, without the John Candy moment. But having said that, nobody would offer me that kind of stuff. Nobody would have ever dipped their hands in their pocket like that or put themselves out. And not only that, she had a footman from the palace, Ian, who used to always give me a cup of tea when I'd be waiting for at the palace, with a, with a catalog to pick out bunk beds for my kids or anything that's, else I needed. That's incredible. Yeah. So... When post that, I've been around a lot of people, even now, people say, oh, you know, she's going to let you down on this or she let you down on that or she hasn't done something or I don't like her. I said, you know what? I don't give a shit. Nobody did that for me. And I don't So did you take anything. her up on it? Of course I did. Nice. Well, yeah, when and you have I, nothing in the bank and you owe money, then, you yeah. know, desperate situations call for desperate actions. And that's desperate and she action. saw that and she offered it to you. That, that's really cool. And within one year, she got the Weight Watchers contract for $2 million a year, right? She represented Weight Watchers. And she got something from Wedgwood, which is a China thing. But leading to another anecdote about her, we, I went on a lot of Weight Watchers tours with her. I also met Oprah Winfrey because she did her book tour in 1997, and she was on Oprah Winfrey. And I remember I met... Um, Evander Holyfield, because he had just beat Tyson on the first fight. I met him in the green room. I met all these kind of people. But I remember this a guy from Helena Rubinstein, the PR company, said to the Duchess, now when you go to, we get out, because we were in Chicago, obviously, and she goes, you remember when you get out there, talk about Michael Jordan, talk about this, talk about that. Now, she didn't know anything about basketball. She knew about Michael Jordan. But I said, and she looked at me, she goes, what should I think I should say? I said, just act naturally. Just be yourself. And she was. And, you know, Oprah liked her. And, you know, I met Oprah and I. I got out there a little bit. I don't think they showed that on TV, but I got out there and I talked about our fitness program. But 
we did a lot of these Weight Watchers tours after that. So we did a lot of stuff where you'd leave London on a Sunday, you'd be in New York on a Monday, then Tuesday you'd go to Columbus, Ohio, then you'd go to Des Moines, Iowa, then you'd go to Miami, then you'd go back to California, then you'd be home on Saturday for Saturday morning, you'd fly in. And, and this time it was 9-11. So it was a Sunday night on uh, what that would have been Sunday, the Not, 9th of, yeah, right. of yeah. you know, Tuesday yeah, was 9-11. It was actually. Tuesday, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was etched in my mind, this buddy, because what happened was we left by private plane on a Sunday night. And I always remember that, first of all, the thing I remember was I always got to pee in on planes. And there was so much, <laughs> the real small, it was a real small plane. So the, the luggage was in the fucking toilet. So I couldn't even fucking pee. So I'm thinking shit. He's thinking shit and he has to pee. That in itself might have been the first problem. So anyways, we fly to New York and we ended this private airport, I think around Greenwich or someplace like this. And we take a, you know, I took a pee around the bushes because I think the toilet was closed. You know, I said, sorry, buddy, but I got to pee. You know, I got to slash. So then we ended up at, at uh, where we usually went to the, which is the hotel there on the 50th. It was called... Uh, I forget the Weight Watchers should put us up there. So we're in the hotel. And then Monday was a bunch of gigs. And Tuesday morning, we went to Good Morning America, right? So Tuesday morning, when the eight, it was 8 15, we were there at like 6 30 in the morning. It was an early, it was an early talk. She was on television. And, and where we was were, this in Manhattan? Was this, this down? Was where? On the low, was this on the lower end of Manhattan, like not far from the twin uh, buildings? Well, what happened was it, was, it was in, it was in um, Times Square, where the, where Good Morning America was. Oh, it's Times Square. Got we were, it, yeah. yeah, we were going to go Times Square, so we were going to go to the hundred and second floor. I mean, can you imagine this? Your plans are to visit Howard Lutnick on the hundred and second floor of the World Trade Center, where Cantor Fitzgerald had over nine hundred employees, of whom six hundred and fifty eight were lost when the plane hit the tower. Howard was taking his son to his first day of kindergarten. Josh and Fergie were late because, as Josh is going to tell you, she has a, a tardiness problem. She gets caught up in what she's doing, and sometimes she has challenges transitioning. This one happened to save her life. Yeah, so what, what the situation was this, is that our itinerary for that day was to do Good Morning America and then see where Howard Litnoff had given her two desks on the 102nd floor where we were going to be, where she used to do her charities. And her PA, this guy Johnny, was supposed to be there, but he wasn't there because he was with her. And we were going to go from from that day, we were going to go see the World Trade Towers and 102nd floor and see her two deaths and then go back to the airport and fly up to Columbus, Ohio or Los Angeles or something like that for the next bit yeah. of the, the Weight Watchers tour. And so we had the Weight Watchers executives with us and all that stuff. So we're in there at Good Morning America, and then she started signing books for this one lady who, cause she's always late. And that was the thing about her, but this is where being tardy worked in our favor. So we're supposed to be on the 102nd floor at eight o'clock in the morning. Now the plane hit, I think about eight 13, the plane hit about eight 13. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and she was signing books for this charity and signing all these books. And the PA said, we got to go, ma'am. We got to go, ma'am. You know, we're going to be late. Cause we got to catch the plane after that. Anyways, we had a security uh, group with us called uh, this guy Lou and he Lou had been actually Frank Sinatra's security guy so we had two Ford Broncos and I was in one and we're on our way there and all of a sudden we get our call it's about 8 15 we get a call and we said we got to turn around I said we got to turn around for I thought well the planes plane had hit 
So we went back to Good Morning America and everybody else saw what was on what everybody else saw, this plane going into the side of a building. And we were in New York. So her being tardy saved us from holy life. Shit. And how, so what happened with us, we went back and then we got a call. She got a call from Tommy Hilfinger that we could all go out and stay with him and his ex-wife in Greenwich, Connecticut. So we went to Greenwich, Connecticut for a week and we watched the news and we stayed with Tommy. I gave him a workout and heard about his life and his story. And he brought us back on his private plane on the Saturday Wow! before before the before the planes were actually flying because if you remember they closed the airport yeah now did she have to cancel the rest of her tour because oh yeah the rest of her tour was canceled man all tour holy shit so you could have been on the 102nd floor if she was tar if she was on time yeah if she was like me rich yeah we'd be dead because i go i'm like i get anxious when i'm a minute late for somebody yeah because i've had women so i you know i you know i don't like being late at all uh, but sometimes, you know, a little bit of, uh, a lateness is good for you. Yeah, so well, here's one example. Yeah. yeah and I, <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, that was quite an experience. I remember I didn't have any, we stopped at an ATM machine on our way out. Cause it was a bit crazy. I put a blue light on our dashboard and it was getting warm. Cause they, we actually pretended we were like ambulance and cop cars were pulling over for us. Cause they recognized this guy, Lou, and he was a cop he had, and all these guys were cops or off duty cops with us. And so we were going out there and we stopped at an ATM machine because there was a lot of panic and people were saying, hey, you know, you better stop at the ATM machine, and get all your money out. So they formed an orderly queue to go to the ATM machine. And they said, Josh, what about you? I said, I ain't getting any money out of that shit. That ain't got no money for me in there. They go, yeah, yeah, right. Huh? No, no. I got all my cash in my pocket. And the interesting thing was when we went to Greenwich or West Greenwich, where Tommy was, we'd go out in the evenings to get some takeaway pizza or something like that, bring it back. I mean, Tommy Hilfinger was just great. He was just a hosp hospitable guy. He couldn't do more for us. Every morning was like the four seasons, but we were watching the news all the time yeah. to see what was happening in the world. But I remember seeing all those cars there, Rich, that were in this parking lot. They, they would take the transit in from Greenwich into the city. None of those people came back for the cars, Rich. All the Porsches. Oh. Yeah, they, they got caught up. Oh my God. Yeah, right. They got caught up in the so, whole thing and maybe were so, part of the so, tower or, or just couldn't get out of the city. Oh, it jumped out of the flipping window. Yeah. And the point that, you know, I didn't have a pot to piss in sometimes, but I was alive. Even my ex called me up and said, are you all right? Because I figured she'd, I'd stop the payments, you know, if I wasn't around anymore. You know? <laughs> That's what she was calling for, <laughs> just to see if you're right. Are you, are you still okay? alive? Yeah, honey, don't worry. I'm okay. Good. Are you going to make that payment to me? And it's like, yeah, right. Don't worry. I'm alive. It's all right. Show me the love. Show me the love. <laughs> but, but, that but I is, say this. That's a story. And that must yeah, have, did that that's, develop a bond between the two of you since you experienced that as well together? Well, we, we, we had a, a lot of bonds together because, um, there was a lot of things that happened over the years. And as far as, um, you know, seeing her through certain moments and I'll say this, that she, even after the third year, I had a book that came out it was serialized by the Sunday times where I was on the cover and my ex and I were the cover of the Sunday times back in 1991. And she gave me a Ford for that. And I only been working with her for two years. And she was going through a divorce at the same time the book was coming out. Josh's book, Body Fit, Energy for Life, can be found on Amazon. It's a paperback and it sells for $6.66 US. Come on, 
666. That's the cheapest advice we could all get for fitness. So her her PR advisor, which was also Margaret Thatcher's PR advisor, said you can't give this guy a, uh, an endorsement when you're going through a divorce. It'll look terrible. Yeah, and it'll look like said, the two of you. You're the reason that she got the divorce. Yeah, yeah, but obviously it wasn't because no. she was with another guy. That's when the papers came out about something. She had a kind of whatever happened. It was all documented. But the point being that I got to say this: she didn't pull the forward for the book, and and that to me. When she made a commitment, she made a commitment. So we had a lot of things together. In 2013, I got her to lose 40 pounds in Verbier for two months in Switzerland. And, you know, we've had a lot of rodeos. And what I saw with her is, you know, I got to be honest with you. She's a great, great, great person. And she's and she's fun crazy. And she's a breath of fresh air. And I used to work with the Duke, too, for a while there, too. I worked with him for two years. I used to see him hit Buckingham Palace. He's, he's a different kettle of fish than her because he's a Navy guy. But, you know, but the point of it is, is that, um, you know, I would say with with her, when she says she's going to do something, she'll do it. And if you got to make one phone call, if you're in jail and and, and, and flipping Iran, you know, because you've been caught with like two kilos of hashish, call her. Yeah, let me write that down. (laughs) (laughs) So she is so she is reliable. I mean, I, I knew nothing about this about her. You know, you only see what PR will show you. And so I certainly knew she was a philanthropist and I knew she was working with Weight Watchers. Has that, has Weight Watchers helped her keep her weight in check? No, I don't think the Weight Watchers did. It kept her bank balance in check. But I mean, Weight Watchers, (laughs) in my opinion, uh, you know, is kind of one of those things where I don't believe in this point system as you, you know, you switch its quality, your food and all this kind of stuff. And I, I went to all these Weight Watchers things all over the States and it was like evangelical things. Like, you know, the guy would go out and he'd say, you know, I used to, four people can get to the genes now. So they had four people stand in the genes that he's in now. And these people would fluctuate and wait. So here's our disclaimer. Weight Watchers works for those who've either lost their discipline for diet and exercises, never hit any discipline. So age and an increasing sedentary lifestyle. I'm not sure grammatically that's correct. I don't think you could say increasing sedentary. So it might just be decrease their activities. Yeah, that's it. These folks need help in understanding how certain foods affect their metabolism. Look, we can't count on food manufacturers or even restaurants to help guide our health. In the United States, the FDA has mandated a list uh, and breakdown of food groups so we can see how many grams of fat, sugar, carbohydrates, and protein we're stuffing in our faces. Weight Watchers helps people moderate their diet. It stops working when they stop counting. So Josh has seen a great deal of fluctuation in people's weight as they pay attention to their food groups and then get distracted as life throws them curveballs. You know, they would go up and down. But the good news about her was she could sell ice to the Eskimos, you know, because she, yeah, she was has a, a very really, nice disposition. She seems cheery oh, yeah. and bubbly and she's very believable. Yeah. And she's she would. The problems we always had with her when we try to get from one city to the other because she would talk to the lady at the security desk 
or she would sign a book for the person, you know, handing her a cup of tea or something like that at the kiosk. So she's very genuine, nice to people. She, she will do for, she will do for complete strangers that she meets. She'll do things for them. And because she's a really kind hearted person, she has a really generous and she's a great mom. Her daughters are, are wonderful people. And, you know, with the Royal family, without saying anything other than, you know, when you live in a bubble, you act like you live in a bubble, you know what I mean? And she's a breath of fresh air from the outside. Cause she was a, you know, obviously she was kind of landed gentry. If you say over here, cause her dad, I used to work with him too. Major Ferguson. Well, she um, came from a heritage of royalty, didn't she? Like great, great grandfather, no, great grandfather. No. I thought she did. No, no, okay. she didn't come from a heritage. They came a heritage. She didn't, there was no royalty there. She married into the royal family, so she was like a. How would you say a? I wouldn't call it a totally a commoner, but pretty much in their eyes, she was a commoner. You know, she she wasn't like you know in the First World War they used to marry you know, your cousin from Russia and then get somebody to come from Spain and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the royals have a lot to be responsible for. Don't forget they started World War One more or less. I would think you know, but you know, having said that. Um, you know, she was a breath of fresh air and she was treated like a breath of fresh air when she first came into the family. And then obviously got, you know, you know, it's a couple things. And then, you know, the red haired woman always takes more shit than the blonde, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah. So that's the truth. So. Um, so, yeah. So do you think there is. So. So let me just if I can, let me springboard that into that. And maybe you have an opinion on this. We haven't talked about this yet, but, you know, here with Oprah doing the interview um, with Megan and Harry, you know, they would, the whole point of that is for them to, well, the whole point was for them to get the cash that they were given for doing the interview, but they wanted to do like set the record straight on all the rumors and bad press they're getting. And, you know, their point was she comes into this blindly and uh, she and Harry fall in love. She gets, the queen's okay to get married, and then not too much after the wedding, things just go south. You know, all of the protocols and all of the things that are put in front of her from the institution, that's how she refers to it, which is, I guess they're, you know, when you're trying to figure out who's in charge in the royal family, you know, is it the queen and the royals, or is it this other institution that's actually helping guide it through centuries? Well, I think. I think there's a bureaucracy, which I used to see at the palace, for instance, the, the, the people in the palace were always very friendly to me. I mean, you know, Princess Diana, whatever people, I never met the queen in person, but I met Diana, I met Charles, obviously met the Duke and Edward, and they were all very pleasant. Uh, the people that, the secretaries of the people are people that, you know, are a bit pompous. And I must say, you know, they have the footmen. And I always remember my parents had the greatest time when the, the head footmen showed them around the palace in 1993. You know, my dad was like, thrilled and so was my mom and you know that was a great experience for them but you could see the bureaucracy around it you know this clarence house that deals with prince charles and you know people keep an eye on the institution so when you say the queen can write her own checks i think she has to get them passed by people you know what i'm saying yeah, and I too yeah from that interview it, that's what i gathered is there's something else behind the scenes that's really running the engine and yeah there's something behind yeah. the scenes there's a question but I'd say this is that in 1987, the, the Duchess was married in 85 and they had a big ceremony and she then and I was giving an aerobic class that day. I didn't know her, but I remember the whole streets of London. Everybody's watching TV it was the biggest thing in the world. And I remember I was in Israel when 
Princess Di was married to Charles in 1981, and I was walking down the street, and in Tel Aviv, obviously everybody has their t- had their TV on the, on the balcony, and you, everybody could you could hear the whole royal wedding going all over the city, you know. So yeah. the whole world was paying attention to both weddings. Right. But in 1987, before I worked with her, the Daily Mirror came out with a thing that said in the front page, "Who would you rather make love to, a goat or Fergie?" <laughs> That's pretty shitty. On the front page, That's and they had a serve. Yeah. Pretty shitty. The Duchess of Pork. Um, you know, Fergie does this. Fergie does that. She's had more shit. I got to be honest with you. Any normal, any person, sportsman, athlete, actor, I don't care. You know, SAS guy, flipping, I don't care who they were. If they had that kind of public ridicule, they would have either jumped, become an addict of something, gone to the meadows like 10 times or some sort of rehab, or just fucking melted down but she hasn't yeah that's why i think megan said she had thoughts of trying to kill herself because she just couldn't take what you're explaining and what um fergie went through or sarah um well i would would say this rich i would say this 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 is my own personal opinion yeah harry i can understand you know his mom you know the mom gets killed you know all this stuff because his parents were divorced charlie had the affair with camilla way before you know he didn't want to marry diana he wanted to marry camilla there was all these squidgy tapes in the early 90s about all this kind of stuff that the papers picked up from phone tapping and they heard you know conversations between him and her diana had come out with the papers but i gotta say this i can understand all the grief that harry must feel and the fear that he must have had not having a mother looking at someone like his his missus worrying about her health and making a a, a, a a response to save her. Now, going over to her, you know, you kind of know what she was in for, you know? And I got to say this, because if you remember the church service, she got exactly the way she wanted it. I'm not sure how long she knew Oprah for. This is my opinion. She probably knew her for a month before the before she was invited. I'm not sure if she knew George Clooney. She knew George Clooney and his wife personally, but they were all invited to the wedding. So it was a big hurrah. And And at the end of the day, I understand how she could be depressed. And she said, well, the HR didn't look after me. Rich, in England, nobody in the royal family has ever gone inside to ask for help. They've always gone to Harley Street, where all the doctors are. The Harley Street Clinic is our flagship clinic, and we offer a a huge range of treatments here. We are renowned for being in the industry for a long time so we've been around for over 30 years we've got an excellent reputation for our service we offer the very best in our knowledge and expertise for our surgeons and everybody knows i don't care if it's prince charles or princess Di, they've all had conferences and consultations with experts outside their corporate headquarters if you want to call bucking palace that so there was no shortage of people she could have talked to because that's what they've all had to done. They didn't, the Duchess didn't get me from the palace, say she wants to get in shape, I need a trainer. Well, there's this guy, Josh, but we'd rather have you have, you know, Major Smith that went through Sandhurst or something like that. But the yeah. point I'm making is if Ernie L's, if I was getting problems with Ernie or problems with an actor that I'm traveling with, I'm not going to go to their HR. You know what I mean? I would go outside. I wouldn't want to bring it into the, I wouldn't want anybody to know what I'm up to. I would deal with it. Was she, so, so you think she was naive? You think she, um, you know, why do you think she didn't go outside if that's the common thing that people in the royal family do to get help? I think, 
I don't know, but I don't know if I can, I can believe everything Harry says. Yeah. I can believe everything that he's saying. I can believe his fear. I can believe his depression. I can believe his angst of growing up in that family, having his mom pass away when he was just a little guy and, and all the things that happened to him. So I, I know that as a guy, I mean, my mom, bless her, she's good now, but she had a breakdown couple of times and no guy wants to see his mom be upset and no guy wants to see his mom just pass away when you're young. I mean, that's like, it, it's no good to have any parent, but you know, guys in there, you know, boys and their moms are, you know, that even though, you know, moms can be, you know, a bit kvetchy and make you feel guilty or whatever they make you feel. That's your mom. You know what I mean? Hey, come on. And, and, and I can understand that with her. I don't really know what to believe. I don't know what to believe. So I'm not going to judge her or anything like that. But I know this, that she hasn't received any grief compared to Diana and definitely not compared to the Duchess as far as getting grief and getting. I guess everybody uh, has a different tolerance for pain, right? And maybe she has hers is uh, lower. And certainly Fergie seems like she has a very high tolerance of pain or she has a way. Again, it's that compensation mechanism to deal with it. And part of it's you helping her with fitness and maybe some of her other philanthropic things, but she <coughs> is still there. <laughs> she's still living, like you said, on the palace grounds, and yet she's divorced. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'll say, well, she's living right now in the Royal Lodge, which is in Windsor. So it's about, it's about a mile from uh, Windsor Castle, and it's where the Queen Mom used to live. In fact, the butler that's there is used to be the queen mom, which was the, the, the queen's mother, um, used to live there. So it's got like, it's a big old place, 50 bedrooms. The first time I went there about 20 years ago, I remember I, you know, I went there and I stopped at this house cause I thought it was that I went through these gates and I stopped at a house and you've got security check. And then, uh, cause you enter the park and you go through another thing. And I stopped at this house. It was the gardener's house. I thought it was where she lived. So the, <laughs> so where she lived must've been really nice. Yeah. So it's really big. It's a big place. And it's got a lot of old, sort of beautiful place inside. And we exercise downstairs in the basement, believe it or not. And, and we're always saying we're in the dungeon. So she does these step ups and then I do my manuals and she has a jump gun and all these things. But, uh, but yeah, that's where I see her now. And obviously with the lockdown, she hasn't been getting out or getting on a plane and doing charity work or doing her various businesses and stuff. So I've been, I think, you know, I would say one time in my life, I definitely have helped her in over this last year when it's been a lot of pressure. You know, daughter got married, a daughter had a baby, um, you know, so it's been, uh, and the Duke's gone through his uh, Jeffrey Epstein stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I it's saw uh, that, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's been interesting. And I see him when I go over there, but I don't train him, but I get a vibe. And, uh, and I'd rather be from Pittsfield than any place else, Rich. Let me put it like that, so. I don't think it, it living yeah, I don't in a know cap- that I do well behind the Royal gates. Mm-mm. No, no. But yeah. so that's it. So I guess if, if you wanted to, if you're going to hire the Duchess, I gave you a good character witness. So I don't know what she could do down in Charleston, South Carolina, but I'm sure she would have been an honest employee, Rich. That's for sure. Yeah. So. She sounds, I'll tell you what she sounds. I, I like your um, depiction of her. Uh, it gives me a whole different uh, perspective on, on what kind of human being she is. So she's um, real. She's real. Yeah. This is the end of part one, where we learned about Sarah, Duchess of York, 
and her big heart, her symbiotic relationship with Josh, and her uncanny mismanagement of time, which on 9-11 saved her and Josh's lives. In part two, we'll hear more from Josh about he came to meet and train Sir Paul McCartney and how after accidentally spitting on him and calling him John Lennon didn't get him fired. You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon. Thank you.